Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Would you welcome with me uh, a wonder, most wonderful person in my life, my wife. We're going to team teach today. Oh, well, hey. well, good, good morning. Um, the last time I got to share, it was on spiritual realities. It was on the reality that we are in a spiritual battle of good and evil, right? And that message, it ended with a challenge that this series on dangerous prayers is expanding. And that question was, well, when did I, when did we as a church start believing that God wants to send us to safe places to do easy things? And how do we start thinking that pl- that safe, that playing it safe is really safe? Because the truth is, is that Jesus didn't die to keep us safe. He died to make us dangerous. Faithfulness is not about holding down the fort. It's about living life with more risks. And our goal is not just to get through this life um, safely until we die. So with that in mind, um, we wanted to explore this prayer of David. And this psalm speaks very clearly to the concerns that we have when we want to live a life that has more meaning and depth, but is definitely more risky. So this Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. I love that verse, that hem me in. In the Hebrew, it means to guard a valuable object. You know, in um, research, because I'm a counselor, um, we talk about healthy relationships. And there's two questions that you can ask whether you want to know whether a relationship is healthy or not. And the first question is, can I trust you? And the second one is, are you there for me? I summarize those questions when I look at my relationships and I, and I think, well, do, are you someone that has my back? And I love how this psalm, specifically this verse, says that we are so valuable and that God is always letting us know that he's got our back, that he is before us, he is behind us, he's got us. It goes on to say, um, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea... Even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is, bright, the night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. Wow. I mean, there is no place that is too dark with God. For you formed me, formed my inward parts. You knitted me in my mother's womb. I praise you that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, and when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. And then we want to jump to to verse 23. It's our dangerous prayers. And it says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. 
And so last week you heard Jeremy, he introduced the first dangerous prayer, search me, O God, and know my heart. And he led us to ask some deep questions about allowing God to do that process. You know, like what internally makes you afraid? What are you anxious about? Is it losing your job, losing relationship, failing? And he said, as we explore those issues and letting God search our heart, I think he said that what we fear the most reveals where we trust God the least. And so we wanted to expand on that. He said we would do action steps this week, and we will. So the dangerous prayer for this week is, try me, or as other translations say, test me, and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful or offensive or grievous way in me. So if we continue to pray dangerous prayers, we need two foundational truths to walk them out. And that's going to be the focus of today's message. But before we begin talking about those two truths, we wanted to examine that struggle of being known. To varying levels, we want to be seen, we want to be known. But then there's this whole other part of us that doesn't want to be fully known. I mean, it can feel dangerous and we can feel like it's more safe to hide and not fully face things in life. And in this psalm, we see David have the struggle with being known. I mean, there are times that I don't want to know, be known. I mean, I would, I would rather be anonymous and hidden. And so I'm going to do a confession. So I'm going to start off small, okay? But um, I have an issue with other drivers. It has improved over the years, but I have, I have never wanted to have a bumper sticker or anything on my car that indicates that I'm a follower of Jesus because, first of all, I'm not that much of a bumper sticker kind of person, and, but more so, I have really unkind driving habits, and I'm sorry. Um, and I may have told this story before, and I apologize, but when I was eight months pregnant with one of my kids who's here, um, I was driving in traffic, and there were two girls that came out in front of me and cut me off, which led me to drive right on their tail, and um, which then proceeded to allow them, then they, both of them flipped me off, like, oh my goodness, okay, so then I decided I'm going to get on their tail even harder, I chased them for three miles, 70 miles an hour in a 35 mile zone. And it was then, it was, it did, it, it, it was like, oh my goodness. I was like, who am I? Cause I was hoping that they would stop and I would take them both on. Like, what am I going to do? Just hit them with my belly. I don't know. Um, but, and it, and it made no difference that I was on my way to work to church where I was doing pastoral counseling, you know? And then it was, I remembered I'm pregnant. I actually have another life that I need to protect, right? And sanity started to emerge, right? And I could blame my road rage issues on hormones, okay? Um, but I have had continued issues with this driving issue, as my kids can attest to. And the point is, though, after my tailgating episode, I was so glad to be anonymous. I was so grateful that I didn't have a bumper sticker that showed the complete incongruence of my faith and my driving behaviors. Um, but the truth is, anonymity is not a real thing. As our scripture says cogently, where can I go to escape you, God? Where can I flee from your presence? Because the truth is we can't be unknown by God. He sees and he knows everything about me and you. And that can either be unnerving or it can be reassuring. There is nowhere that you can go that would escape the loving, watchful eye of your heavenly father. Even your unseen actions are seen by God. Like we saw um, in the garden, Adam tried to hide from God, but God knew Adam's sin before he ever confessed it. God knows us better than we know ourselves, the good and the bad. Now, here's a number. Do you know what this number represents? It is not a Powerball prediction, okay? Okay? But as of yesterday, this is the number of people that are currently living in the world, plus or minus 10, okay? Um, that is a lot of people. How many of you like to people watch? I love to people watch. I like to think about, like, what kind of things does that person do? What kind of 
things do they like? What kind of struggles do they have? I mean, and that always lends me to thinking like, how can God possibly know and love over 7 billion people? And that's not even including all the people that have come before us, right? But throughout the Bible, and specifically here in Psalm 139, we see the answer. That God knows every single person on this planet. Each person has his undivided attention. And God not only sees each person, he knows them. Nothing escapes his sight. It says he is familiar with all of our ways. We cannot hide. He knows everything about me and you, and he loves us anyway. It's not a challenge to him. And this is what makes him God, right? So understanding how much he knows us and loves us despite our flaws is the first of the two foundational truths that we need to know in order to walk out this dangerous prayer of try me and know my thoughts. See if there is any grievous way in me. Know me. Know we have to first know the pursuing love, the acceptance and grace of God. And with any relationship that we have with God and others, we are not going to be willing to explore our hiddenness or our failings if we are not sure that we can trust, that we can trust somebody, that they are committed to the relationship despite our faults. And so it's with this confidence that we have the grace to come out of our hiddenness and we take steps to grow, right? These words of Psalm 139 are some of the most beautiful in all of Scripture. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And the meaning is profound. God's presence is inescapable. No matter how far we wander or run, um, there is nowhere we can hide from God. He created us in our mother's womb, and he loves us. And I love that there's this playful quality about Psalms 139. Like, if I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I go to the farthest limits of the sea, even there your right hand shall hold me fast. The pictures are vivid, you know, up to the heavens, down to the underworld, to the farthest limits of the sea. Where can I go? Where can I flee? Nowhere, because you're there, you're there, you're there, you're there. And it reminds me, and I don't know how many of you were starting to think it too. It reminds me of that book, The Runaway Bunny. Do you remember? It's by Margaret Wise Brown. She also wrote Good Night Moon. After 70 plus years, this book has been one of the best-selling children's books of all time. So even though it might be a little cheesy, I wanted to share a few of those thoughts Um, Because one of the things we love about children's books is they take truths and they make them so clear because they're simple, right? So you may remember the story. Once there was this little bunny who wanted to run away. So he said to his mother, I'm running away. Well, if you run away, said his mother, I will run after you for you are my little bunny. Well, if you run after me, said the little bunny, I will become a fish in a trout stream and I will swim away from you. Now, if you become a fish in a trout stream, said his mother, I will become a fisherman and I will fish for you. Well, if you become a fisherman, said the little bunny, I will become a rock on the mountain high above you. Well, if you become a rock on the mountain high above me, said his mom, I will be a mountain climber and I will climb to where you are. And the story just continues in that same vein with the bunny continuing to want to run away and his mom continues to say that she's going to keep pursuing him and finding him. Now, how many of you um, remember wanting to run away when you were younger? Or maybe it's even a desire you have right now, okay? But I remember being in the third grade. It was the dead of winter, and I was so mad at my parents for some kind of consequence. I packed up my bags, and I was ready to run away from home. But then it was where to? I lived in the country. I also lived in Minnesota, and it was the dead of winter. (laughs) It wasn't a well-thought-through plan. Um, But it may look different now. I still have this tendency to want to run. We can see it in many different ways throughout the Bible how people tried to run away. Again, we mentioned again Adam and Eve. They hid from God behind the bushes in the garden. But he came after them and he called out to them, where are you? He pursued them because he loved them. And then we have Jonah. 
God said, you know, go to Nineveh. But Jonah fled and he ran away from the presence of God. He went in the opposite direction. But God continued to pursue him out of a love for him. And then we have like the Saul of Tarsus. Before he became Paul, on his way to Damascus, he was threatening murder against the followers of Jesus. But then he met the risen Christ. He was running from God. God found him and it changed Paul's life. So think about this psalm also in relation to Jesus' parable of the lost sheep. Oh, I love that story. You know, the love of God is like that shepherd who always goes in search of the lost and the wandering or straying sheep until he finds it. God is always going to pursue those who run away or have wandered away. He just loves that much. And this tendency to want to run away is just part of our human condition. We like to be in control. We want to be self-sufficient. Running away can look like avoiding, dealing with loss or pain or disappointment. And if we don't see God moving quickly enough or in the ways that we want him to, we can sometimes take things into our own hands. This kind of control and self-sufficiency leads us to distance from God and from other people. But God's response is just the same. He loves us. He's always there. He's pursuing. He's ready to love, to forgive, and to restore relationship with him. And as we've seen in the ending of the runaway bunny, that bunny, he's so exhausted by his mother's relentless pursuit and promise to run after him, he finally says, well, shucks, I might just as well stay where I am and be your little bunny. And then she gives him a carrot, you know, so. Um, But this psalm just emphasizes that no matter how hard we try to hide our mistakes, our sins, or our worst behaviors and our thoughts, God knows them. So why fight it? Why run? Just say, shucks, I'm just going to lean into understanding God. Um, God's an inescapable love that just pursues me with all my flaws. And when we know that we're loved, we know that we're accepted and we can't earn this love, there's nothing that we could ever do to lose that love of God, it leads us to repentance. And that's our second truth that we wanted to talk about today. Today's culture has all kinds of messages about kindness and tolerance, doesn't it? But when we actually look deeply at our culture, there is a resistance in our culture to the idea of forgiveness, resistance to grace and repentance. Many of you may remember Lee Atwater, the uh, successful campaign manager for both Reagan and H.W., and the youngest ever head of the Republican Party. He was known for his dirty politics. Yet in 1990, after being diagnosed with terminal brain cancer, he met with several prominent Christians and became a follower of Jesus. And what he immediately began to do was he immediately began to call people and write letters confessing his sins and asking many of his political opponents for forgiveness, admitting he was a dirty politician. And what's really interesting, if you remember that time frame, is what the pundits did with that during that time. They, they kind of walked this fine balance around him. They had to be careful. They liked the fact that he was admitting that he had been a dirty politician while at the same time kind of having this attitude, what do you mean forgive? I mean, who, who, how do you wipe the slate clean and forgive someone of something like that? I mean, come on, really? You don't forgive other people, groups of other people who sin against you. You just remind them forever about it and never let them forget. I mean, it's good. It's nice that he admitted he was wrong, but, but you don't forgive. And then many of you may also remember Chuck Colson, Nixon's hatchet man. He was convicted and imprisoned for criminal activity as a politician. He was a dirty politician, and he was treated much the same by the media after coming to faith in Christ and beginning to apologize and seek forgiveness from people. It's nice, they thought, that he was asking forgiveness, but let him walk beyond what he did, forgive Absolutely no way. 
This last week I happened to go back and reread some of the, the comments when he passed away in 2012 in the major newspapers. And, and the media focused more on his past and they minimized all the years of work he did trying to help prison reform and establishing what became the largest, most effective prison ministry ever. In the world, if you fail or sin, it is a blot on you forever. The attitude of much of the world is to forgive is actually to put yourself in a place of weakness. And if you do that, you'll be absolutely crushed. But in healthy relationships, especially in marriage, you discover it's exactly the opposite. If you don't forgive, you will be absolutely crushed. If you don't put your past behind you, if you don't start clean and don't allow other people to, you will be crushed. Think about it. Do you know any relationship that has thrived or been restored without forgiveness? Relationships, especially close ones like, like marriage, teach us about grace and repentance like nothing else can. You, you, what you see in marriage is that you can't be saved by your performance, by your works, because frankly there are some actions and words that cannot be made right by just saying I'm sorry and trying to change. We realize in marriage especially that we don't deserve to be forgiven and we learn that forgiveness comes by sheer grace and love of another person. Tim Keller said about marriage, he said, in marriage you can't hide you are exposed. And he goes on to say, marriage brings out the worst part in you. It doesn't create your weakness, though you may blame your spouse for your blow-ups. It just reveals them. So when Wendy and I started dating, like many of you, I put my best foot forward. I dressed nicely, uh, given, uh, understand that was Keister, Minnesota, 20 years behind kind of fashion look, so it wasn't that great. But I tried to minimize my flaws. I tried to let her see the things that would impress her about me and I invited her to events where I thought I would look good. And back then I was a pretty good softball player and we were playing college intramurals, so I invited her to a game. And thankfully she came because it was the best game I'd ever had. I was five for five. I had two home runs, a triple and two doubles. And I had three of the best acrobatic outs that I'd ever caught in a game. And it was all against the jocks of the athletic dorm. Now, by the way... Wendy doesn't remember a single thing about being there that day other than the fact that she was there. But I'm sure it still impressed her. Now after 32 years of marriage, things are different. She knows me, the real me. She sees me and she smells me when I come home from running and all my gross clothes and I have my unguarded speech around her that isn't always great. She knows me at my worst and yet... Thankfully, she still accepts me and loves me. And that's not easy. Take it from the source. Close relationships like marriage give us the opportunity to confront our real self. In any close relationship, you see the drama of what we'll call the gospel cycle of repentance and grace happening on a regular basis. You see it all the time in every single day in small ways and then every now and then in big ways and uh, just a few times for most of us in life in really, really big ways. You see this in any healthy, good marriage. The cycle looks like we have peace for a time, and, and then all of a sudden one person decides that the, 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 they'll put their happiness above the other person's, and, and they sin, and they, they decide to live for their own desires, and it ends up creating estrangement and alienation in the relationship and pain, and, and then somebody in that relationship 
initiates and they reach out in grace and, and there's repentance and reconciliation and then peace and harmony return. In every good marriage, that is the gospel cycle we see that we go through constantly in varying degrees of seriousness and pain. Now, this is the cycle also that we live out in relationship with God as well. In the Bible, we see God who has every right to be angry with us, right? Because we often offend him when we, when we basically choose to act our own way. We say to him, I don't need you. I don't want you. I, don't, I can do this on my own. I'm smarter than you. And, and we know better than God is basically what we're saying to him. And, and by our words and our actions, we oftentimes accuse God, our good God, of being angry, unwise, petty, and wrong. And yet when we offend God, instead of Him responding first with wrath, God pursues us. He covers our sin and says, I know what you've done. And I've dealt with that. And I want you. Would you open your heart to me? Because mine is open to you. See, that's God's part, His grace. He initiates pursuing love of us. God always begins with His love and His grace. And our human part in that cycle of, of grace, that gospel cycle is, is to respond with repentance. Now, in other relationships, the cycle of grace and repentance can happen in either, either order. It might not start with somebody pursuing initiating love. It might start with somebody repenting first. Or, or you may be the one who is offended and you need to initiate moving out in love and grace regardless of whether the other person has repented or not. And what this looks like is if your spouse has wronged you and you are the offended one because you are solidly accepted in God's love, you can say, I'm going to put away my wrath I'm going to put away my anger and my hurt. I'm going to determine to forgive and act with initiating, pursuing love even before they repent. I'm going to choose to open myself. I'm going to choose to try to love them well. Not ignoring, not excusing behavior, not being passive. What I just described isn't passive at all, is it? You are simply making the first step toward restoration. How do you do that? Well, generally, it isn't best to do that with a lot of words because if you sit down with your spouse and begin to say, I'm the offended one, I'm choosing to put my wrath away, I'm going to choose to forgive your sin, and I'm open to you coming back, how do you think that's going to go? What you've actually done in doing that is not love. Instead, it's actually punishing them and rubbing it in their face. What love may very well instead look like is you approaching them saying, I know you have a desire to love well, but I don't know what's going on, a lot of pressure, a bad day. I don't know if you're not feeling well. And and as soon as you say that and you don't revile even though you've been reviled and you don't hit back even though you've been hit by them and you don't do payback, the redemption cycle has begun. And Romans 2.4 teaches us that it's kindness, as Wendy said, lead, that leads us to repentance. Kindness is far more effective at bringing someone to repentance than getting angry and spiteful and being cold and distant. And when your spouse begins to respond to your initiation of love with repentance, the gospel cycle is complete. So, but that leads us to the question, what is repentance biblically? We see Jesus illustrate this for us in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, where basically the son comes back home and he says to his father, uh, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against heaven and I make no excuse whatsoever for my behavior. 
Not only that, I'm not going to make any demands of you. If you don't want to take me back, that is okay. If you want to take me back partially, that's okay. If you want to let me work for you as a slave, that's okay. I would really like, is basically what he's saying, I would really like to be in relationship with you again. That's repentance. No explanation, no excuses, no demands. See, we oftentimes get repentance confused with our idea that's, uh, that we commonly think of penitence as in today's world, where we try to, where we try to grovel, where we try to self-punish ourselves, where we try to do enough things and feel bad enough that you merit being received back by the other person. But that's just stale, dead religion. Nor is repentance excuses. It's saying I'm sorry, but explaining and making excuses. Like in this instance, maybe the son could come back and said, Father, I was rebelling. I was, I was 18 years old. And that's just what 18 year olds old, olds do when they separate and individuate. I, I, yeah, I ended up in a pigsty, but hey, I've been reading books on this and that's just normal. So can I have my place back? Maybe not my particular room, but can we have everything kind of returned to normal? See, repentance is no excuses, no defenses. I will take whatever you give me, no demands, your discretion in this. There was a movie a few years back called Dad uh, with Ted Danson as the dad and and Ethan Hawke as the son in the movie. And uh, there was a place in the movie where the son, who in his 20s now, talks with his dad. uh, The the dad had divorced uh, the mom and kind of left the family in the lurch. and, and, And he says, Dad, why did you leave mom and us when I was just a kid? And they're sitting at a, at a restaurant and dancing, who's the dad, looks at him and says, well, we had, we had irreconcilable differences. We, we had two different views on life. We were both young and we didn't really know who we were and what we wanted in life yet. But, but you can see in, in the way they put the shot together that the son is not buying it. And finally, the dad looks at him and says, okay, let me tell you why I left. I loved the power I had when I made money. And I couldn't do the job I wanted to do and make the money I wanted to make and still have a family and love the family the way I needed to. And every time I was around you and your mom, I felt guilty. And the simple reality is I love the power and the money more than I love being married and raising you. And that's why I left, son. And when the dad did that, he moved from excuses and explanation to repentance. And the writer and the director of that movie illustrated the power of that so well because as they portrayed in that moment, the relationship between the dad and the son was resurrected in that moment. The gospel was happening. There was real repentance. And that made possible the beginning of reconciliation. You could see how the son was sitting there almost as if saying, if you would just admit your past, I'm ready to move forward, but you got to own your stuff, dad. you got to own your stuff. Repentance, it's something we learn to do. But it also has to be a natural step of praying these dangerous prayers in our life of search me and know me and try me. In the world, people think repentance and forgiveness will only result in in, in crushing you and, and exposing your weakness. But in marriage, in any close relationship, you discover that if you don't do this well and learn to do this well, it will crush you. And if you don't understand the importance and the power of repentance, then you don't really fully understand the gospel yet. True repentance is about restoring closeness and joy. 
But for most of us, I think we struggle with repentance because we do what I, we'll just call today religious repentance instead of gospel repentance or real repentance. Religious repentance is all about doing the right things to appease God's displeasure or another person's displeasure and hopefully make God happy enough so that he'll continue to bless you and answer your prayers. The result is at best when you do, that, do it that way, a distant utilitarian relationship with God. See, in religious repentance, we are primarily sorry for our sin because we don't want to deal with the negative consequences and the negative feelings that we don't like that come with our bad choices. So we repent to avoid and deal with those feelings. In reality, that kind of repentance is actually all about you. It's self-centered. We're not sorry for the sin itself, but we're sorry for the difficulty of the consequences that we're experiencing. See, religious repentance is selfish. It's about your comfort. It's not only selfish, but religious repentance is also self-righteous because it's your attempt to do enough of penance to feel bad enough long enough that you convince God or the person you've, you've offended that you merit their forgiveness and being restored and accepted in relationship again. And that's actually contrary to the gospel, which says Jesus suffered for our sin and took it upon himself so that we could receive his forgiveness freely as a gift of love. Not because we earned it. See, with religious repentance, you feel farther from God because you're always trying hard to earn it. You're always tense about needing to earn it. But with true repentance, it actually makes you feel closer to God, just like the runaway bunny illustrates gospel love so well and repentance so well. We know we are and we will always be lovingly and relentlessly pursued and welcomed by God with open arms, ready to hug and draw us near because our hope is in his love and Christ's righteousness, not our own abilities. See, therefore, when we understand God, the real repentance that way, it's not so traumatic to face and admit weakness and our sin and our lapses. Whereas in religious repentance, we tend to repent less and less as life goes on because we get our performance engine going and we start to feel better and convince ourselves we're doing well. But as we follow Jesus in realizing more deeply the power of the gospel, what you'll find in your life as you grow is that you will repent more and more frequently and more openly as you grow as a follower of Jesus. Why um, Ross and I wanted to do this message together is our strong desire um, to see that all of us grow in healthy relationships with God and with others. Because relationship really is the mission, right? Grace and repentance are key. But boy, we know it is so difficult. Um, I know um, my dad loved the Mills Brothers. Does anybody old enough to know the Mills Brothers? Um, Okay. Um, But they had this one song that my dad would play. You always hurt the one that you love, the one you shouldn't hurt at all. And why is that song so true? Because of all the people in my life, the one I've been most hurtful to is Ross. And I don't think that I'm alone in that. We often just hurt the people that we're closest to. And it makes me sad to say that, that I've been hurtful. But boy, I still find myself having a very hard time repenting with him. I can do it easier with other people, but him is harder. Um, and, but in the moment, it's just much easier to blame the other person. I like to be right. I want my way. And to admit that I was wrong or I hurt someone, I mean, I'm saying like I'm lacking in character, I'm flawed, and I'm selfish. And now in my head, I'm thinking when I'm in an argument that I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I want Ross to be the first one to back down. 
And, um, and so, but, it, and it's a whole totally different thing, right? To know that you're wrong, but to have to verbally acknowledge it and to ask for forgiveness. Oh my gosh. To have humility and vulnerability when you're ticked off. Um, but if we want healthy relationships, if we want meaningful purpose in life, this cycle of grace and, and repentance is so essential. So a tip that works for me, um, when I don't want to verbally say I'm wrong is I'll, we're in the middle of an argument. I'll ask Ross, well, could you just pray? And because um, Ross, what is he going to say? No, because I have, I have in my pocket. You are a pastor, and you're not going to pray. So I mean, I can play that. And um, I want him to lead because my prayer would probably start like, "God help Ross to not be a jerk," you know. Um, but yes, I am. Yes, you can be, um, and so can I. But you know, so but no more so. Just a very short prayer, like, "God, I need your help. I just need your help to walk this grace and repentance out." And taking the time to verbally say how you've been wronged when you apologize and repent, it's important because it helps us to avoid one huge mistake that people make when we say, I'm sorry, and we think that just saying I'm sorry makes everything okay. Healthy repentance means that you take the time to be fully aware of what you've done that's wrong. Extensive research on relationships shows that. It shows that apologies only work if the person who did the offense understands the pain that they caused the other person. And we see the reason in this dangerous prayer, like, God, help me to see if there's any hurtful or grievous way in me. It shows us this process of repentance requires listening to the other person tell, how did your actions affect them? How did you hurt them? And once you understand what your actions cost them, you verbally specify what you're apologizing for. They need to know that you understand how your actions affected them. Owning behavior leads us to taking responsibility And that's how we rebuild trust. It's this whole gospel cycle of grace and repentance. Not not easy, but oh so worth it. Because every time I act like a jerk and I have to repent, I get to get reacquainted with the gospel again. And that's what grace is all about, right? I get to be reminded of that God loves me when I don't deserve to be forgiven. But in the moment, boy, resentment can feel like it's more powerful. It can feel more satisfying. But if I choose and if we choose grace and repentance reconciliation is really so much better. I mean, as a counselor, I see a lot of people with pain. And so I was just thinking about, like, what are some of the times I've seen people choose to engage or not engage in this grace and repentance? And I I remember the looks on someone's face when their spouse has told them that they've had an affair. And you see the reality of that intense betrayal and rejection just come and hit them. I mean, it's a horrible thing to see. I can't even imagine what it would be like to feel that. And then in the midst of all those many different emotions, they have to make choices. And I've seen some choose grace. And after taking time to process grief and betrayal, they choose to forgive when it wasn't deserved. And these choices have led to seeing marriages restored where they are better now than they were ever before. And I've also seen where the one who was offended chose grace and the other person in the the marriage didn't where some chose to stay in very difficult marriages and some chose to leave. But regardless of the outcome, I have never, ever heard someone who chose grace and repentance regret it. Grace didn't mean that they didn't have boundaries, that both individuals didn't need to make major changes, and grace didn't always mean that they stayed in the marriage. But what I have seen is that those who chose grace, they grew in a depth of character and joy that I could only aspire to. And because when they chose grace, they became more deeply acquainted with God who chose them when they didn't deserve it. And it's, this is the grace that changes us everything. So how do we live this out? 
Well, I think we can just continue what we're doing in this series, to continue to pray these dangerous prayers that feel dangerous to us because they make us face things that we don't want to face. But when we start praying this prayer, God, search me. And is there any grievous, hurtful way in me? God, is there anything I need to repent of with you? Or, 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 or God, who do, who do I need to, to make right, things right with? Is, is, there, is, it, is it a family member? Is it an ex? Do I need to sit down and make an appointment with somebody at work to, to make my relationship better, to, to lead in this gospel cycle? See, we can practice grace. We can practice repentance with those who are around us. Listen and verbally let them know when you've been the one who has offended them, let them know how that you understand how your behavior costs them and take responsibility for your actions. And each of us throughout this whole thing can deliberately focus on resting more fully in the acceptance of God in our own lives because God is always pursuing you. His love is a sure thing which enables, when we understand that it enables us to be more honest and vulnerable and loving in our responses. It enables us to live out this grace, acceptance, and forgiveness in all of our relationships. Now, communion is a beautiful representation of God's pursuing love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Communion is about remembering his initiating sacrifice for us to be in right relationship with him. So as you come today and take the bread, servers, if you can come, if you come today and just take the bread, just remember the sacrifice Jesus did in coming to live among us and to be like us and to identify with us. And, and as you come and take the, the cup, remember how he initiated love to provide forgiveness and invite you into relationship with him. And as you remember his love and sacrifice, allow yourself to ask those questions of him. See, we only think these prayers are dangerous until we understand God's love. When we understand God's love, these, these questions become the safest, most joyful daily habit we could have in our lives to ask him to search me, to know me, to try my heart, to expose my anxious thoughts and lead me in the way everlasting. So would you join me as we pray? Lord, we just ask that as we celebrate communion now, as we celebrate this great loving act that you have done that you ask us to remember regularly, that you would come to us and flood us with a sense of your love and your safety. And Lord, we ask that for each and every one of us, whether we need to initiate love towards someone who's offended us or whether we need to initiate repentance, Lord, would you give us the thoughts and the ideas and help us as we take action to do those things so that our relationships can be restored, they can be beautiful to the fullest level possible. Lord, I specifically pray for people here who have, who have had bitterness for a long time and they see no way beyond it. Lord, I pray that you would come to them and that you would show the way through that, that you would break that bitterness off, that you would show us how to follow you and to root that out by participating in your love for us and the cycle of repentance and see how you want to come. So, Lord, we welcome you in this moment as we continue to worship and we receive communion. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. 
If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.